we went through Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. Each of those chapters lay out for us um, the fall of Satan, how Satan fell, what led him ultimately to that time when he was standing in heaven in perfection, looking at Almighty God and choosing to be surrendering, I guess, surrendering himself to his feelings of pride. Scripture laid out for us that Satan was created higher than all the other angels, that he had timbrels and pipes, that he was a musical instrument himself, that he was one of the anointed cherub that covers. And so he's one of only a couple of angels the Scripture talks about as the cherubim. Yet his heart was filled with pride. We we, we read Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, that says, These six things God hates. Yea, the seven are an abomination unto the Lord. Do you remember how it started? Pride. A proud look. A lying tongue. You go down that list of the seven things in Proverbs chapter 6, and you see an exact description of what Satan became when he made his choice to rebel against the Lord. So in Isaiah 14, what we're looking at, remember Isaiah is prophesying in this section of Scripture against uh, um, the Philistines, we'll see as we continue on through chapter 14. But more than that, he's looking at the power behind what's going on, the power behind the choices people are making, the, the power behind the reason why people are rebelling. And he gives us, that, that little synopsis in Isaiah 14 that describes for us that fall. So we took a look at that last week. This week we're going to continue going on through the rest of the prophecy uh, that Isaiah gave in chapter 14. So we'll pick it up in verse 24. Now in verse 24 he's going to shift his, his focus now and his focus is towards Syria. So this is a lament against Syria and we're entering a section in the book of Isaiah, which is called the Judgment of the Nations. That should sound familiar to us. If you read the Gospels, and you read through Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, you've read the Judgment of the Nations. That there's a time coming. Now this is a a time that has taken place already. But prophetically speaking of a time that will take place when the nations of the world are judged. Maybe you remember how it goes. For I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they said to him, Lord, when did we see you naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when were you in prison and we came and visited you? And the Lord said, Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And then the Lord goes on. You, on the other hand, when you saw me naked, you didn't clothe me. When you saw me hungry, you didn't feed me. When you saw me in prison, you didn't visit me. And they said, Lord, when didn't we do those things? And he said, inasmuch as you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. Now, Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 is speaking about the nation of Israel. You remember how that whole section begins? Jesus, the the disciples are looking at the temple in all its glory and they're saying, oh Lord, do you imagine anything so majestic as this temple? And Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another, but it's all going to be laid waste. And the disciples asked him two questions, right? When will these things be? And when will be the time of your coming? The signs that you return. So in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, in Matthew 24 and 25, he begins to speak prophetically about the nation of Israel, about what's going to be happening in the world, what's going on in the, in the end times in respect to them. Why? Because God's prophetic clock always runs on the nation of Israel. God's prophetic clock has always been focused on Israel, on Jerusalem, on the nation we see the, the 70 weeks of Daniel when we studied Daniel chapter 9. You guys remember? 70 weeks are determined for your people. And he gives the whole history of the nation of Israel in relationship to their relationship to him from beginning to the time that they would see their true Messiah face to face and accept him. And he says this is going to take place in this many years. 
But in the midst of that many years, what happened? 70 AD, Israel ceased to be a nation. And what happened when they ceased to be a nation? The clock stopped. Until they become a nation again. And the clock begins to turn. The Bible says we're in what's known as now as the time of the Gentiles. When the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, it's filled. When the last Gentile to be saved will come to the Lord. When our, our time is complete as the church. The Bible says when that's done, God's going to turn his eyes back to Israel. He's going to turn back and we're going to see the 70th week of Daniel the tribulation period, the final seven-year period of time uh, we've all looked at. So in light of that, during that time, at the end of the tribulation period, what takes place is what's known as the judgment of the nations. Those who enter into the kingdom, that's not you and me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're the church, you're the bride of Christ. When Jesus calls us home, you will be with him forever from that point forward. My recollection, that begins in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is the last time you see the church mentioned in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 begins the tribulation period. Chapter 19, we see Jesus return. And in Jesus' return, his bride is with him. The church is with him. We'll be with, at whatever point he calls us, we're with him forever. So the, the kingdom's not for us. We'll be there. We'll see it. We'll be ambassadors, if you will, for Jesus Christ. But I'm not going to be caught up in this sinful body anymore. I'm not going to be caught up anymore in this deteriorating the carcass that I carry around every day. It becomes more and more like a carcass, to tell you the truth, all the time. I won't be hauling that thing around anymore. The Bible says when I see him, I'm going to be like him. I'm going to be like him. I cast off all this junk and I'm going to be him, his set apart from sin, made holy unto God, that will be our state. But there are people that will enter into the kingdom who have lived through that period of tribulation. How do they get into the kingdom? They get through the judgment of the nations. Whoever lives through the tribulation must pass the judgment of the nations. What is it that Jesus said? When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah? Most people say, well, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah because they, they were homosexuals. That's not true. The book of Ezekiel says that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah totally based on the fact that they had fullness of food, idleness of time, and they didn't care about the poor. And God said that was their heart. What spiraled out of that became militant homosexuality but that was beside the point what god was judging is the fact that when they were naked they wouldn't clothe them when they were hungry they wouldn't feed them when they're in prison he wouldn't visit them and when jesus is speaking about that in matthew 25 when he says in that you haven't done it to the least of these my brethren who's he talking about i believe he's talking about the nation of israel who will enter into the harshest time of persecution on the face of the planet during that period of time. But he's also talking about the tribulation saints. Those who believe in Jesus during the tribulation. What's going to happen to them? They die. You're going to, every one of them is going to reach a point where they will have to make a choice. Either you, you bow before the ruler of the world, whoever that person is going to be. We call him the Antichrist. Or... You can bow before Jesus. You make your choice. Whatever way you bow before Jesus, you die. Off with your head. That sounds so barbaric. Really? How, what's the number one form of capital punishment in the Muslim world? Beheading. What's the fastest growing religion in the world? Islam. Shocking, huh? The Bible says that they'll lose their head. Jesus is saying, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, my kids... The tribulation saints, those who came to faith in me. My children, the children of Israel. What did you do for them? When everyone was against them, when everyone was slaughtering them, when all that stuff was going on, what did you do for my kids? And that will be the basis of entering into the kingdom. Now, as we look at these chapters that deal with the judgment of the nations, remember, these are specific nations that face judgment against the kingdom of Assyria. Historical event that took place. But prophetically, we can see little shots out into the future 
of what one day may take place prophetically as we take a look. <clears throat> so as we begin in chapter 24, this is the, the lament against Syria. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I, as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it, so it shall stand. Now, I don't know if that's a promise you got on your fridge, but it ought to be one. Because no matter what we face every day, no matter what enters into our life, it passes through the hands of a God who loves us. God hasn't somehow lost control, and oops, I didn't see Jackie get into trouble there for a minute. No, he sees it. He knows it. More than that, he has orchestrated it. But what's the point? The point is that we go through that storm, we go through that struggle, we face those events in our life so that we grow. Do you trust that God is still on the throne? Here he's saying, hey, this judgment is coming. How long has mankind been talking about the return of Jesus Christ? Pretty close to 2,000 years. How long did Noah preach that it was going to rain before it rained? 120 years. What about that period of silence from the Old Testament to the New Testament? 400 years. Time is, is not relative to God. It's, it's outside of his worry or concern. The Bible says God is not slack as some count slackness. God is not slack concerning his promises. But he is long-suffering. He desires no one to perish. So his hands are outstretched, awaiting, waiting for that time. Here he's talking about the fact that everything that takes place passes through his hands. He says in verse 25, And I will break the Assyrian in my land. The Assyrian, his name is Shennacherib. He is a foretaste of the Antichrist. One of the titles of the Antichrist is the Assyrian. What did Shennacherib say? He stood outside of Jerusalem with the heads of kings and with a, with a thing full of their idols and said, Oh, listen, king of Israel. King of Israel's name was Hezekiah. He said, hey, Hezekiah, all these heads were from guys who said their God would protect them. And this pile of their idols is all their gods that were going to stop them from my hand. Let me tell you, Hezekiah, you can't stop me. I'm coming. But God said, I'm going to wipe out the Assyrian in my land. And we're going to see some rather specific prophecies as we continue on, provided we get that far, that talk exactly how God did it. One night, he wiped them out. In one night. Look what he says. And on my mountains I will tread him underfoot. And his yoke shall be removed from them. And his burden removed from their shoulders. This is a purpose that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purpose. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Then he turns to a lament against Philistia. This is a burden which came that year against King Ahaz, the, the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken, for out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery, flying serpent. Listen, Philistia, when the nation of Israel was taken, the nation of Israel is conquered by Assyria, they sat back and kind of laughed. <laughs> look at that. They got Israel. They didn't get us. And through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying, hey guys, don't smirk. Don't laugh. Assyria is coming for you too. Assyria ruled and reigned for 700 years. Their kingdom ruled until the kingdom of Babylon took over. And God used them as a tool to, to bring judgment. And he would bring that judgment against his own children and against others. Verse 30, he says, The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. And I will kill your roots with famine, and I will slay your remnants. Wail, O gates, cry, O city. All you of Philistia are dissolved, for smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. He's saying that this judgment will come from the north, from Assyria, and that the Syrians are going to wipe out the nation of Philistia, who thought that they, were, they had a pass. 
But they didn't have a pass. They didn't have a pass. They were going to face the same judgment. <clears throat> and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. Then he goes on in chapter 15. Again, the lament or the burden against Moab. Now, do you remember how Moab began? What was the start of the Moabites and the Ammonites? The Moabites and the Ammonites began like this. Remember Lot? He was in Sodom and Gomorrah. The angel was bringing judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. So they came and they were taking Lot out. And Lot's children wouldn't come with him, only his two virgin daughters, remember? And so he took his two daughters and they went and dwelt near, in a cave near the city of Zoar. And in Zoar, in this cave where they dwelt, the two girls got the idea that there's no more men on the earth. So they get dad drunk. Apparently dad wasn't smart enough not to bring any alcohol. He brought alcohol with him. Whatever you do, don't leave that behind. And he brings that alcohol, and he gets drunk. He gets so drunk, the Bible says, he doesn't know one thing from another. And his oldest daughter lies with him and is impregnated by her father. And then the younger daughter does the same. The children are born, and they are named Ammon and Moab, the Moabites and the Ammonites, two enemies of God's people for the entire time that they exist. So this is where their foundation is from. This is how they began. And this is the burden against Moab, one of the descendants from Lot. Because in the night, Er, Moab, is laid waste and destroyed. Because in the night, Kir of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the temple in Dibon, to the high places to weep. And Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba, and all their heads will be baldness, and every beard cut off. The Assyrians attacked Moab at night. They came in at night and laid waste to them. Historical fact, it happened. Isaiah said it was coming. And it took place. And it took place. Now, he's going to the temple or the house. The house, the temple of Baal at Dibon. Baal, remember, was one of the false gods of the Canaanites. And he wailed over Nebo. Nebo is the highest mountain peak in that region, in the region of Moab. Now, in verse 3, he says, And in their streets they will clothe themselves with sackcloth on the tops of their houses and in the streets... Everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon, Elile will cry out. Their voice will be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar. Remember Zoar? That's the, the city by which Lot and his daughters camp. Like a three-year-old heifer... For by the ascent of Luchia, they will go up with weeping. For in the way of Horonaim, they will raise up a cry of destruction. For the waters of Nimrim will be desolate. For the green grass is withered away. The, the grass fails. There is nothing green. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. For the cry is gone. All around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglam. And it's wailing to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Daimon will be full of blood. Daimon literally means blood. So the waters of blood will be full of blood. Because I will bring more upon Daimon. Lions upon him who escapes from Moab. And on the remnant of the land. So what he's talking about for Moab, Moab's going to face utter destruction in the sight of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to, the Assyrians were so vile a people that when they would come, whole cities, whole nations would commit mass suicide not to be taken by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were vile, ruthless people. And before it happened, through the prophet Isaiah, God told them what was going to take place. 
Folks, it works the same way it works today. When, when God lays out for us those things are going to happen, people look at them and they think, yeah, 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 whatever. Right? Noah kept saying it was going to rain. Yeah, Noah, we ain't even seen rain. What's rain look like? But did God tell him it was going to rain? Did God tell him it was going to flood? Did God say everyone can get on the ark? Whosoever will. There's the door. Come on in. Who came in? Eight people. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. That's it. Nobody else came. Nobody else came. Now those people who drowned in the flood, who do they have to blame? Did God say, here's what's happening? But you see, God says, I have exalted my word above all my name. If you won't believe what God says, then you won't put your faith and trust in him. You, if you accept what God says, then you're able to put your faith and trust in him. But it all comes down to, will you believe my word? So he's laying out for them. The Assyrians are coming and they're like, oh yeah, they got Israel. We'll be okay. Nope. Eh, didn't happen. They came and Moab fell. Then he goes on into chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Isn't that an interesting way to begin? Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. The ruler of the land at that time was the Assyrians and there was a toll that was paid by the nations and Israel paid it for a period of time where they gave so much of their flocks to the king of Assyria. They gave it and, and so he, he allowed them to exist. <clears throat> so the Lord is saying, listen, send the lamb, even from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. We talk about the mount of the daughter of Zion. Now we're looking toward Jerusalem. And that word Selah, maybe it says so in your margins, the word Selah means rock. It is the same place known as today in the land of Moab, or today called Jordan, known as Petra. Isaiah chapter 16 has some interesting things to tell us about what's going to take place in Petra and what, what's going on in that area of the world. Listen, send the lamb from Selah, from Petra, the rock, to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. In 1812, there was this story going on around the world that somewhere there was this city carved out of solid rock, but nobody knew where it was. They, they heard about the stories, but the, the Arabs weren't sharing, you know, where this land was. There was only, there's only an entrance. The entrance into this land is only at the, at the opening wide enough for two horses side by side to walk into. The, the lowest the walls are in the Sikh are 400 feet. The tallest is 800 feet. 800 feet high, two horses wide is the Sikh that leads them to this valley created by the Nabataeans carved out of solid rock. In 1812, there was this fellow named Johann Burkhart. And he said to the Arabs, he said, listen, I want to give a sacrifice to Aaron. They, they tended to worship Aaron. You know Aaron, Moses' brother. He's buried there. You can still see his tomb if you go. The tomb of Aaron. When you come to them, they said, but I only want to do it if I can do it from Petra. So in 1812, they showed them where it was. Now today, you can go see it. Anybody that goes to Israel and has that tacked onto their trip is an opportunity to walk through Petra. Why? What's the big deal about Petra? Guys, Petra's amazing. At the height of Petra, 300,000 people lived there. You seen that, that movie, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade? They film it. They show you the first uh, part of the town you see when you come out of the Sikh. It's called the library. You come out and you see this incredible carving. Here's what you don't know. That incredible carving is the tomb that they placed on top of their houses. 
there's still 30 foot more city under the sand carved into the rock unexcavated being currently being developed by the Swedes but unexcavated up until this point what's the deal about who cares about this guys Isaiah chapter 16 begins to tell us a story about how God's people are going to survive the tribulation and it has to do with Petra it has to do with Petra listen beginning in verse 3 says take counsel execute judgment make your shadow <coughs> excuse me like the night in the middle of the day hide the outcasts do not betray him who escapes oh that's kind of interesting isn't it he's talking to who the moabites after he talks about their destruction to the assyrians he begins to talk about something a little further down the road what is moab today jordan where's petra today in jordan one of the few friends in the Arab states to Israel? He'll never guess. Jordan. Hmm. Well, hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. He seems to be talking about Hiding his people, giving his people a place to hide. Well, what's he talking about? Guys, hold your finger here. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to take a little journey, a prophetic journey through the scriptures. Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel we alluded to earlier. Daniel chapter 9, probably the greatest or close to the greatest prophecy in the scripture. Beginning at verse 27. says... Then he will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. Who's he? It's talking about that one world ruler, the Antichrist. I'd have to back up and read the whole thing to you to lay it out for you. So just study it on your own or believe me. He will confirm a covenant with the many. The many is a term for Israel for one week. One week. One hepstead. It's the same as we get from the word decade. If I was to say for one decade, you would say how long? Ten years, right? If I said one hepstead in Israel, you would say seven years. So when he says for one week, he's talking about seven years. Not seven days, one hepstead, one seven-year period of time. And he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Hey, listen, by the way, do you know how many treaties are made with the time period? Uh, so far, none. You know, like uh, we'll be at peace for a couple of years. Most of the time, they, they leave them open. We have peace until you mess up or until I mess up. But there will be a treaty that will have a number on it. The first person to, to recommend that was Jimmy Carter in trying to do some work in the Middle East. That's kind of interesting. Uh, it says in the middle of the week, what's the middle of seven years? Three and a half years. So in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He's going to shut down the worship in Jerusalem. And on the wing of abominations shall be one that makes desolate. <clears throat> That's known as the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus is the one who clarifies that for us in Matthew 24. Don't worry, we'll be there in a minute. Even until the consummation which is determined has been poured out upon the desolate. So he tells us there's going to be an event. The abomination of desolation takes place. Three and a half years into the tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation period, what is this abomination of uh, uh, desolation? Well, we go to Matthew chapter 24. Let's check out Matthew 24. Jesus, again, we alluded to it earlier, <clears throat> giving us a teaching on end times and the things that were to take place prior to, to his return. He begins in verse 11, says, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel, the kingdom, <clears throat> will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, 
Whoever reads, let him understand. Then those who are where? In Judea. Last I checked, U.S. is not in Judea, by the way. Who's he talking to then? He's talking to Israel. And those who are in Judea. Where's Judea? In Israel. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on his housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant or nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now who does that affect? Will it affect us if it happens on the Sabbath? What happens in Israel on the Sabbath? Everything stops. You can't even get in an elevator. Because pushing a button is work. So the elevators, the Shabbat elevators, stop on every floor. You might as well take the stairs. There are certain forms of transportation. Don't run at all on the Sabbath. You want to get somewhere? You're going to walk. Planes aren't going to be flying. Things aren't going to be happening. So escaping from Israel on the Sabbath would be a hardship, right? Escaping from the United States, is that a hardship on the Sabbath? No different than any other day. Who's he talking to? nation of Israel. He's talking to the children of Israel, to the, to the Jewish people. And this is what he says. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now I told you twice who he's talking to. So who's the elect? The elect is Israel. When he's speaking toward us, the elect talks about three different people groups. When he's speaking to you and I, and he uses the term elect, when he's talking to the church, and he uses the term elect, he's talking about us. If he's talking to the nation of Israel about what's happening to them, and he uses the term elect, he doesn't focus context on the nation of Israel, and then whoop, swing it over here to be talking about the church. Stays in context. The elect become the nation of Israel. The elect's sake. If those days were not shortened, they wouldn't survive. They wouldn't make it through. There was a time in world history where that didn't worry us very much. Because if I have a sword and you have a spear, we can't destroy the world. That's not the case anymore, is it? Things are a little more advanced. We have the ability to... Destroy the world several times over, don't we? So it's a good thing that the Lord is watching out for. So Jesus says, listen, the abomination of desolation is going to take place. Israel needs to flee. They need to run. Well, what else talks about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 12. So flip over with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 says this. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head was a garland of 12 stars. Guys, throughout time, people, when they look at prophecy, they want to arbitrarily decide what something means. When we look at prophecy, we look at prophecy in the book of Revelation or Isaiah or wherever we're looking at it. We want the Bible to tell us. We want the Bible to tell us who someone is. What is this a symbol for? What is this a sign for? The woman in Revelation chapter 12 reverts back to the book of Genesis when Joseph had a dream. And in his dream, his mother and father and his 12 brothers bowed down before him. Do you remember what the symbolism was? The moon, the sun, and the 12 stars. It has from the beginning and continues to be a symbol For the nation of Israel. The woman is the nation of Israel. We'll see that as we take a look. And being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. Now what child of prominence did the nation of Israel give birth to? Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born of the Jews. Born the nation of Israel. Following God's word, what God said would take place. He was born the nation of Israel. And listen, this child, she's crying out to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great 
fiery red dragon. Now the Bible tells who the red dragon is. Who's the red dragon? Satan. Red dragon is Satan. Another sign appeared in heaven. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads. Seven is the number of completion. Heads speak of intelligence. Complete intelligence is what it's talking about when it says seven heads. Ten horns. Horns throughout the scripture are a symbol of power. Ten horns. This is power. Some people point to ten nations. And seven crowns upon his heads. Crowns, seven kingdoms. I found it interesting. People are always trying to figure out what the ten toes, the, the ten horns, the over and over in Scripture we see that. People are looking for a ten-nation group in the rising of the European Union. But there's far more than ten nations in the European Union, right? And at one time it looked like they were going to hit ten, but no, they went far past. But you know what recently has taken place? Just an interesting side note. Europe has decided to divide Europe into ten regions of language. Ten areas that are going to primarily speak this language, then this language, then this language, and this language, as they draw the borders through Europe. So is that going to be the, the ten nations, the, the ten groupings? Maybe. Maybe it doesn't have, doesn't have anything to do with anything. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll figure it out. Okay? Then he goes on. Uh, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. Now we read about this, right? The fall of Satan, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And he threw them to the earth. And the angel, or I'm sorry, and the, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Did Satan try to destroy the Messiah? Multiple times, right? Multiple times he tried to wipe out the nation of Israel to destroy the Messiah. At the time when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He slaughtered all the innocents, right? Two years old and younger. He slaughtered all the kids. An effort to wipe out the Messiah. So here's Satan ready to devour the child. Okay? As soon as he was born, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's the baby? Jesus, right? To rule all the nations with a rod of iron. A male child. And her child was, and by the way, this is an interesting phrase, Caught up. Maybe you're familiar with the Greek word, harpazo. Maybe you're familiar with the Latin word, rapture. Jesus was caught up. What do we see at the end of Jesus' ministry after he gave the commission to his disciples? What do we call it? The ascension, right? He went up into heaven. Revelation 12 calls it the rapture, the harpazo. Being caught up to his father. Interesting. Exact same word used in the book of Thessalonians speaking about the church. Now as we go on. It says in verse 6. Then the woman fled. This is the part that fits for us tonight. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Where she has a place prepared by God. A place prepared by God. Now we were just reading about that in Isaiah 16 right? The Lord saying, hide the outcasts, take care of my people, asking Moab to watch over his people. Listen, she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. How long? 1,260 days. Want to guess how many years that is? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. We look at all those scriptures together and we see God's prophetic plan that there's going to come uh a holocaust against God's people to try to wipe them out. We can read about it. Well, we will read about it. We have read about it in Daniel. But we will continue to read about it as we go through the prophets. And as we see, the nation of Israel is going to flee to a place God has prepared for them. Most scholars point to Isaiah chapter 16, verse 3, 4, and 5. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the... Like the night in the middle of the day. That means don't let anybody see you. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter for them from the face of the spoiler. For the the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy the throne will be established. And one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging 
and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. One day, Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. So the Lord crying out to Moab saying, hey guys, here this destruction has taken place, but there's a future event taking place. Take care of my people. Take care of my people when they come. You know, how many times do we read stories throughout the Holocaust of Germany where people hid the Jews that were being slaughtered, put their own life at risk, right, to take care of them, to try to help them get to safety. The same thing God is calling for from Moab as we take a look here. And he goes on in verse 6, and we have heard the pride of Moab. He's very proud of his haughtiness and of his pride and his wrath. But his lies shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Ker. Herseth shall, you shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. Again, the destruction of Moab taken place by Assyria. Assyria is going to take them. He's going to wipe them out. Now for the fields of Heshbon languish. And the vine of Sibma, the lords of the nation, have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazir and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They've gone over the sea. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma with the weeping of Jazir. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah. For battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away, and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab, and my inner being for Kir Heres. And it shall come to pass, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. Moab's going to get weary on the high places. When the Bible talks about high places, it's talking about those places of false worship within the nations. In the Greek cities, they had what was called an Acropolis. You guys have heard of that, right? In the Acropolis, every city in Greece had an Acropolis. On the Acropolis is where they put their temples. They would go to the high places to worship. Same thing is true of the Canaanite culture. They would place their temples on Why? Because their temples would be up on this mountain that they could defend. They didn't want anybody to take their temples. That's where they put all their, their treasures, you know, toward their gods. So they would protect their... The Greeks did the same thing. The Temple of Diana. You've heard of that, right? The Temple of Diana. It's on the Acropolis. You go to Athens today on the Acropolis. What's on the Acropolis? There are temples. Still there. People go tour through them now. But they're still there in the high place. So when the Bible talks about they went to their high places, they're weary on their high places. He's saying, listen, they're calling out for help from false gods that can't help them. They're going to go into that sanctuary and pray, but to no avail. Because they're praying to dumb idols. The Bible says, you cut down wood, from that wood you make a pile that you burn in your fireplace. But in a section of that wood, you set aside and you carve it. And you say, this is my God. The Bible says, eyes he has, but he can't see. Ears he has, but he can't hear. A mouth he has, but he can't speak. And those who worship him become like him. What's that mean? I can't see. I can't hear. I can't understand. I don't understand what's going around me. This is what he's talking about when he's talking about this judgment coming on Moab. He's going to cry out, weary himself on the high places. He's going to pray in the sanctuary, but to what end? Because he's put all his trust in that which cannot save. Where's our trust tonight? I mean, in the nation of Israel, we can, or in the nation of the United States, we put our trust in the military. I mean, nobody's really kicked our tail in a long time. I mean, when we went to war against Iraq, it was, 
I mean, I know people died, but come on. That was a piece of cake. I didn't even have to hardly work up a sweat to do that one. And we start putting on our faith and trust in the, in the jets that we have, and the bombs that we got, and the army that we have. But God told David never to count his army, his chariots, or his horses. Why? Because <clears throat> he didn't want David to trust in that. Because we all know, you've been around long enough, you always know that there is a batter dude somewhere on the block. You just haven't bumped into him yet. I used to talk to guys growing up that would tell me, oh yeah, I, I, I'm a fighter. You ever lost? No. <laughs> then you're a liar. Because if you're a fighter, you will lose. No, there, Nobody, and I mean nobody, ends as the uncontested heavyweight champion of the world and hadn't lost a fight. You would lose a fight. You put your faith and trust in your ability to fight, you're going to be let down. You put your faith and trust in the might or your riches or your power. That's what these guys were doing in the judgment of the nations. They're putting all their faith and, and trust in, in a, <clears throat> well, it won't be tonight, but later on we're going to talk about Egypt. Same thing with Egypt. Putting their trust in their own power, putting their trust in their might, putting their trust in their riches. But in the end, none of those things save them. Only one thing saves. Relationship with Jesus Christ. So one thing that saves, what the Bible's telling us. Only one thing saves. Only one thing brings salvation. Verse 13, he says, Now this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. And now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. So what happens to Moab? In three years' time, Shennacherib shows up. In three years' time, they get rolled by Assyria. So God gave them three years' warning. When it says, this is the lament that went to Syria, that means Isaiah took that to Syria. When it says, this is the lament of Moab, means he took it to Moab. It means he brought that word to them and said, hey, this is what the Lord says. What do you think they said? Whatever, brother. Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? We worship Baal up here on the high places. We're following the false gods in this way or in that way. That's why God says, you guys are going to go to the high place and cry out. But those gods can't hear you. Because they're not real. But he is. In the Old Testament, the Lord lays out, I will prove to you that I'm God. Because I will tell you the end from the beginning. So Isaiah, remember in the book of Isaiah, the critics look at it and they say, there's no way Isaiah could have known all this was going to happen, that the Assyrians were going to come down and take these kingdoms, that it was going to happen in the time period that he mentions. He's going to mention the similar time period in each one of the nations that he talks to. And within that time period, God's judgment is going to come. Assyria will come and destroy those nations. How did he know? How did Isaiah know those things were going to happen? In a little while, Isaiah is going to call a dude out by name a hundred years before he's born. That gets a little trippy. Not to mention the prophecies that he's going to give us concerning the Messiah. How did he know? He couldn't have known, could he? God told him. God said, I will prove to you that I am God by telling you the end from the beginning. That's what we see tonight as we take a look at Isaiah. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time that we could share together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that if we're willing, if we're willing to sit back and have eyes to see, if we're willing to allow the word to speak for itself, if we're willing to see how these pieces fall into place and do a little bit of research, we'll discover. Well, God, you know the end from the beginning. You laid out history before it took place. And Lord God, as we look at that, as we, as we, as we are in, in many ways in awe about it, 
If you told us what was going to take place then and it happened, what about the things that haven't happened yet? Will they take place? Is Jesus really going to return? Is there really something known as the harpazo, the catching up, the rapture? Is there really a a tribulation? Is there really an antichrist? Do all those things really happen? Throughout the pages of Scripture, not one prophecy that has been mentioned has not been fulfilled. How many times do we look before we say, if he told us that then, then this is going to happen too. Lord, give us the faith we need to trust in you. To not be like these other nations who who read the words of of prophecy and said, ah, yeah, whatever. Never going to happen. Only to cease to exist because they would not pay heed to what you said. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be a people like that. Your word declares, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and I will hear their cries from heaven, and I will heal their land. In Ezekiel, Lord, you said that your judgment finally came because there was no one left to stand in the gap. God, make us willing to stand in the gap. To pray for our country, for our friends, for those who don't follow you, for those who don't know you. May we stand in the gap and buy them time that they might know you. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit in a mighty way. Even as you fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, when you fulfilled Joel 2.25, this is that which was spoken of by Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young men will dream dreams, speak with new tongues. Your women will speak with tongues. Lord, you laid out for us that these things were going to take place. And we find ourselves in that time, looking for your return. So help us focus. And be what you're calling us to be. That we might glorify you in all we do. And we lay this time before you. In Jesus' name. Amen.